Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is described as a sneaker historian, and uh, he's here to talk about sports shoes, sneakers, and trainers. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, Thomas? Well, hi. Uh, my name is Thomas Turner, and I am a historian of sneakers, trainers, sports shoes, whatever you like to call them. And I've written a book called The Sports Shoe, A History from Field to Fashion. Um, yeah, I'm a historian. I've been interested in this sort of stuff for, um, as, a, as an ind- individual for ages and ages, since I was a kid, basically. Um, but I've written this, p- approached it more as a, as a history project, trying to find out the origins of the sports shoe looking at where it came from and then also trying to trying to establish why we think about them in the way we do and how they have become such a celebrated and desirable kind of garment that we have today. And your background is actually um, academic. You're a professor, I believe. <laughs> I'm not a professor. I wish I was a professor. No, I'm a, I'm a, I have an academic background. Yeah, I've got a, um, my background is history i did a, a ba and ma in history and then i did my phd which was on the history of the sports shoe uh, and i teach at world college of art and at london college of fashion at the moment so um, teaching students who are fashion or design students about the history of fashion history of design how they can think about it perhaps how they can use um, theory and ideas about the world to perhaps inform their design and make them into better designers so going back in time to when the modern sports shoe first came into being, when would that be? Well, the modern sports shoe comes into being around the, the middle of the 19th century. So what you have is this the birth of sport as you know it, if you like, it kind of takes place through the 19th century as a, as a, a kind of connected up to the um, Industrial Revolution. And you've got all of these... Older sports and games, things like uh, football, tennis, uh, baseball, cricket, that are based on games that people have played for centuries, if you like, but they're codified and turned into the um, types of sports that we know today. And then what happens is that at the same time, you've got these people doing these new activities and there's an industry which is kind of, you know, wants to make money, wants to produce things and wants to get some of these people's uh, uh, income and starts making shoes and footwear and clothing for these particular sports. So it's at this point that you see specialist footwear being made for uh, football, for track, athlete, uh, track and field athletics, and for lawn tennis particularly, uh, which is the one that becomes, I would say, the basis of the, the sneaker that we have today. So the first ones are really made, say, in the 1870s. And before, I mean, before they started making the specialist uh sports shoes they pretty much use the same shoes for every sport or well i think what well, yeah i think i mean i think you can go back in history and you can find that people have worn special shoes for sport um for as long as people have played sport so there is this kind of thing about henry the eighth how he had worn special shoes when he played played tennis or uh charles the second the the um court records show that he made a massive order for a load of tennis shoes in the 17th century but the thing is that the difference is is that you don't have lots and lots of people playing sport there isn't a mass market for it and at the same time there isn't a a mass industry that can cater to a mass market it's only in the 19th century that you get those conditions where you've got mass sport and mass production which allows kind of shoes to be made 
for a specific purpose. What you see, though, is that pretty early on that you have these specialist shoes, generally shoes that have got spikes or studs, which are so spike shoes perhaps for athletics, studded shoes for cricket or soccer or football in the US. And then you've also got these shoes for, for lawn tennis developed, which are the ones that have a flat sole so that you can run around on a grass court. And that that kind of becomes a multi-purpose sports and training shoe from the point when it's introduced, really. So from the 1870s, you see tennis shoes being worn for a whole host of different kind of activities, whether that's mountaineering uh, or basketball when that's in- invented or for kind of training purposes if you're a, a, a runner or if you're playing football or something like that. People use them to play football on frozen ground. So you see, initially, you see this kind of first off um, specialization of shoes, but then you have a, 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 a huge market for tennis shoes and those are adapted and worn for different purposes by people who are playing different sports and games. And then manufacturers start tweaking them to make them uh, appropriate for di- the needs of different athletes, different sports. Right. I guess uh, spiked shoes would be sort of socially unacceptable in most circles. So well, hence the tennis shoes are, are more usable. Well, it's not just that they're socially unacceptable. I mean, they're practically unacceptable. I mean, if you, take, <laughs> you, can't, you can't walk around in a pair of running spikes apart from when you're on a running track. Same with a pair of football boots. If you've got studs on the bottom of them, they're just not, they don't lend themselves to very many other situations. I think the the lawn tennis shoe, which is, uh, I mean, lawn tennis is invented in the 1870s, or you know, it's set down as a new game in the 1870s. It has much older, um, uh, you know, like its ancestry goes back much further. But it's when lawn tennis shoes become available, they have these flat soles. They're made of rubber. They are low cut. They're lightweight. They can be used in a whole, diff- whole, you know, a whole host of different situations, whereas a football boot with studded soles can't really. You can't really wear that when you're walking down the street in the same way that you can with a tennis shoe. So that's the, you know, that's the, the kind of shift. That's the important thing. I think it's got this flat sole that you can wear it anywhere you like. But no, spikes wouldn't be socially acceptable, I don't think. <laughs> no. um, what would have been the sort of ordinary shoes at that time? Because it must have at some point, these ordinary shoes, which were probably were a bit smarter, were sort of being then replaced by tennis shoes, which I imagine many thought of as not really appropriate, yeah. even if they were comfortable and practical. Exactly. Um, I mean, the the, sh- the type of shoes that you see being made then, I mean, they're pretty similar to a traditional, uh, a traditional shoe that we would have today. So they would have had leather soles, they would have been uh, sewn leather uppers, for everyday wear, it was perhaps more common to wear a high boot rather than a low-cut shoe for men particularly and, you know, women as well. Um, and they would be made using the machinery that had been introduced into the footwear industry from the 1860s through the 1870s. All the, all the kind of sewing machines and the lasting machines and soling machines that we see making traditional uh, Goodyear welted shoes now that had already been introduced so those had become the tr- the kind of standard shoe if you like um the difference with the tennis shoe was that it had a rubber sole and that generally it was made out of much lighter uh, material so often much lighter leather than you would see on an everyday shoe and often that it was low cut so that would be a, a difference between uh, you know the boot that you might wear in everyday wear 
and a tennis shoe that you'd wear for sports. Some people, when they saw them, yeah, it would make a different thing. And it was seen as being a bit a bit kind of gauche, a bit sort of uh, rebellious, a bit kind of unusual to be wearing them outside of the tennis court. But pretty quickly it became fashionable among, among, among young men particularly to wear them uh, as an everyday shoe. So at this point, where are we in time? This is in the 1880s. I mean, this is 1880s, 1890s. By the end of the 19th century, you have a fashion among certain groups of young men to wear tennis shoes and other types of sports clothing. So, you know, flannel trousers, stripy blazers, all that kind of thing, um, as an everyday fashion, as a, as, a, as a thing that you would wear when you were perhaps going out, when you were going to the beach, when you were on, uh, at leisure, rather than it being something which is specifically tied only to the tennis court that you would only wear when you're playing tennis. So you see young students wearing it, you see young men in their 20s wearing it, you see men on holiday wearing it. Um, and that's already in place at the end of the 19th century. And from this point on, it just continues evolving. It evolves. And I think what you've got, I mean, the thing that if you looked at a, a, a 19th century lawn tennis shoe and you you saw it today and you had it today, you would think this basically looks a bit like a shoe. It doesn't look that different to what we would consider as being a more formal or a more traditional uh, men's shoe. But the thing is, if you put yourself in the mind of somebody at the time, it looked quite different and it was quite radical. It was quite, you know, quite radical in a way. And what the shoemakers and the, the big manufacturers had been doing was looking to new methods of making footwear. So embracing all of this new machinery that had become available and also looking to new materials. So the rubber sole is crucial in this because it's it's used because it's uh, it grips well on the grass court. It's uh, you can kind of mold it into a. A, a flat sole which means that it doesn't dig in and doesn't cause any damage in the way that a, a studded or spike shoe would do and because it's so expensive to install a lawn when you're playing for lawn tennis people don't want to damage it so there's very practical reasons why they used rubber but rubber is a is a relatively new material that's only really become available since like the 1850s so in the same way that today you see manufacturers so like nike or adidas or someone looking to work with big chemical companies to find the latest polymers and the latest um, carbon fiber, uh, you know, foot plates that can assist the athletes. That was what the manufacturers were doing at the end of the 19th century, but they were just using the materials that they, they had available. And that process of innovation, that continues, you know, that continues to this day. Am I right in thinking that around 1850 might have been when they started fetching natural rubber from South America? Yeah, exactly that. So you, they start bringing back natural rubber from uh, Brazil, and there is a, a a a kind of big, I don't know what you call it, ploy by which the British smuggle out a load of seeds from um, Brazil because Brazil, the the rubber that you get from the Brazilian rainforest is the most uh, plentiful and the, the kind of the best source of it, if you like. But the problem is, is that you've got to go and collect it from the wild in the, uh, the rainforest. So it means that supplies of it are relatively limited. Um, in the 1870s, the British kind of sponsor this um, operation by which a load of seeds are smuggled out of Brazil. Uh, Brazil is trying to uh, monitor rubber exports because it's such a crucial market for them. Um, the British want some sort of supply of rubber themselves because it's so important for industrial machinery 
and um, they get these seeds, they develop them, germinate them at Kew Gardens, and then they export them over to um, British colonial possessions in Southeast Asia, and then they start growing it on plantation as a kind of plantation agricultural crop. And those become the basis of the, the large rubber plantations in places like Malaysia and uh, Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia that we kind of know today as well. Um, and that becomes this huge, great source of um, rubber that kind of comes on stream towards the beginning of the 20th century. Wow, that's a that's an immense story just in itself. Yeah, the story of rubber is fascinating because it's this it's it's almost like the first plastic, if you like, and um, it's 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 a, a really important material for um, for for the sort of industrial development. Um, it's important in the you know motor industry particularly it's important in moving people around um it's important in mass production because you have all kinds of small rubber components in machinery you have things like conveyor belts made of rubber um and that it's 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 only in the 1850s that the process by which natural rubber because natural rubber which comes from latex which is sort of collected from the sap of a tree in its in its raw state, it's not a very stable material. It doesn't, you know, it goes brittle when it's cold. It gets sort of floppy and soft when it's um, hot. So you can't really use it very well. It's only in the 1850s that the process by which if you add sulfur um, and heat it, this process called vulcanization is discovered. And that's when it becomes a much more uh, practical, much more usable material that you see. It's, you know, like the rubber that we have today, that's, it's the, that's when it's developed. Um, and it's these you see shoemakers embracing it as a as a new material in a way that I think it's important for sport because sport doesn't have that um because there's this emphasis on performance and because it's still a relatively new thing there you're not bound by ideas by what a shoe should look like you're not bound by a, a kind of preconceived um idea about what it should be made of whereas if you're making shoes perhaps for the military or for formal wear or just for everyday use you've got people's ideas about what a shoe should look like within sport the emphasis on performance is new it can kind of look like anything and you see that today with the shoes that you know those shoes that the marathon runners are wearing the night vaporflies which have these weird soles on them that that's the, the the kind of same justification for them using rubber this material that hadn't been used on footwear before um they just take this because it's it meets the needs of people playing the game um and they, they take it from there right so given that rubber was then the first sort of tech fabric or text tech component of uh of the sports shoes what would the next evolution be the next evolution of it i mean if you if you go rapidly through it i mean the 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 big evolutions or the big changes are things like you have the development of um, various processes that allow you to mould the soles together. So when they're first made, they're still relying very much on this stitching technology. So you'd sew the sole on. So in the way that you'd have a traditional men's shoe with a sole stitched to the bottom of it, that's what they use with glue, rubber sole glued on the bottom of that. They develop processes in the 20, at the beginning of the 20th century where it can be done as a whole process so it's almost molded together that's one change um you then have a pro like series of changes of being able to glue the soles onto the bottom of the shoes that's another big change but then the next really really big development comes after the second world war so 50 
50, 60 years later, where shoe manufacturers really start embracing oil-based plastics and you start seeing them incorporating plastics in the shoes, so in uh, the components that make up the shoe, but primarily they're making soles that use plastic on the bottom of them. And that becomes a really big uh, a big change. And that, in a way, sort of sets the, the scene or, or sets up the trajectory for the shoes that we have today that are very, very, you know, made out of synthetic synthetic materials for the uppers, synthetic polymers on the soles, incorporating all kinds of plastics, uh, plastic supports, plastic kind of laces and eyelets and all that kind of thing. So that process begins um, toward the end, or well, after the Second World War, basically. Right. And sort of moving on and turning a little sideways, at some point, sports shoes or trainers also become a sort of cult collectible object yeah definitely i think they become i I mean it's interesting looking at it they're they are desirable and people want them um for you know for as long as you can find them but i think this kind of cult object this kind of cult status where people start collecting that really starts in the kind of in the in the perhaps in the 70s, when you start getting a, a proliferation of various styles and, and models, <clears throat> and that lends itself to this um, mindset where you perhaps want to get different ones. So companies start introducing different shoes for different sports. They start introducing uh, various models for um, athletes who have different requirements or who have different, um, you know, they can spend different amounts on them. And you, they start introducing shoes for um, specific markets. So you see companies selling shoes in one particular country that are maybe not available in a different country. And all of that feeds this kind of collecting impulse that people want to have different shoes. So you see it starting off perhaps in the US where uh, basketball, so in the 70s where companies are making basketball shoes, they would they would have a standard models that are available for most people to buy so you could get converse say in in white or black but then they would make special college shoes for the uh, sports teams so for college and professional teams those would become desirable people would want to get those then you get other manufacturers so adidas and puma start getting into the um, business in the united states at that point they start releasing shoes people want those as well and you get all of this competition between the different brands, and that feeds this desire to try and get them all. Now, that continues through the 80s, through the 90s, until you've got what you have today, where you've got this huge kind of collector's market for it. Because I get the impression that people today, there is a huge interest in the latest limited edition hyped sneaker, but at the same time, you have um, the casual guys. Um, and the people who grew up in the 80s who are still busy collecting either originals from then, especially Adidas, I think, and also reissues. And they're still very venerated, the sort of classic three stripes, uh, yeah. suede Adidas. You have, I think there's, the, the trainer world today is interesting because you've got um, – You've got collectors who are seeking out, they're almost like antique hunters. They're seeking out old original models from the past. Um, so they want to find, yeah, particularly Adidas shoes because Adidas up until the um, 90s really was the biggest 
um, and perhaps the most influential manufacturer of sports shoes and had just, just this ginormous range of different models because it was trying to make a specialist shoe for every sport imaginable and because it had a, um, a, a kind of structure by which it had loads of subsidiary companies spread around the world that was all making different models for different markets. So the the number of the range of Adidas shoes produced is absolutely vast. So you've got people trying to collect all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's very much this kind of hunting old, you know, looking for old sports shops that maybe have old shoes out the back or finding um, forgotten warehouses where there are a, a, a cache of dusty old shoes that never sold, that kind of thing. So it's a, a dead stock hunting kind of thing or or trying to find you know shoes at jumble sales if you're lucky now um and then at the same time you have this this um scene which is collecting the latest limited editions like you say which is kind of almost uh, a thing that's almost getting a bit like an art market if you like where you've got people trying to get shoes that are created in collaboration with the big sports brands and then with say a streetwear brand or a a musician or a celebrity or an artist or something and they make these shoes in highly limited numbers Um, they are hyped up and people want to collect these shoes and then there is this very active secondary market in which people are buying and selling shoes after they sold at retail for huge sums far far greater than uh, the amount that they would have cost initially um and that's this kind of other sort of sneakerhead culture that's going on so you've got these two two different sort of angles if you like really a kind of historical one and then one that is um based on what's being produced now it also strikes me that during the 80s and 90s the sneakers were still relatable to actual sports they were still sort of evolutions of the tennis shoe but the sort of sneakers i'm seeing today look to be sort of pretty much pure design and pretty far out designs as well yeah definitely the 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 stuff you see now i think it's it's almost like the sneaker has become uh uh, just a category of of garment so it's in the same way that maybe a designer might um work in 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 a a tradition in a suit a traditional suit and they would they would play with the parameters of that and they would d- design it in in a way that was kind of innovative and interesting but it's got no bearing on you know like it's original conception for it in the, or the same way with jeans or a sweatshirt or, or whatever you might might you know might think the sneaker has become something like that where it's 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 divorced now from sport and it can just be designed as a sneaker and it doesn't necessarily have to be good for playing sport in it becomes about how can you design it how can you kind of create something and some of the creations are really outlandish and really imaginative and um would be absolutely terrible if you walked onto a basketball court or a tennis court or tried to run a 100 meters in them Uh, but that's not what they're for anymore they're about design they're about imagination and i think you're, you're right like in the 1980s they were still making shoes for sport they were in, you know they were incorporating some of these ideas they were trying to make shoes that looked good and they were tr- they were they were being influenced by fashion and they did know that people were wearing them not for sport i think that's one of the big you know it's almost like a, a myth that the the shoe companies 
had no idea that people were wearing their trainers for you know going down the shops or for fashion i think that's absolutely not the case they did but they were focused on prim- primarily on creating footwear for athletes and were you know happy if it got used in other ways because it increased their sales at some point they must have dramatically uh, upscaled their marketing departments and strategies for for selling though well i think they've got they, there's a shift that you see uh, in the sort of like in the 2000s really where they become much more um at ease with the fashion market and it takes them a long time before they can really grapple with it um you, you there's there's this sort of moment like nike and adidas they both have these moments where they feel that they have become too um oriented toward the athleisure market or the non-sports market and that it's damaged their core brand and they both they both sort of publicly restate their commitment to sports nike does it in the mid 80s adidas does it at the beginning of the 90s but what you see through the 90s is them becoming increasingly uh, comfortable with creating shoes that are intended not for sports but for you know mass fashion and one of the drivers of that initially is that they start selling um old shoes so they they reissue shoes that were from the 70s or the 80s in the 90s and those shoes are only intended for fashion they're not intended for um sport and originally they'd been kind of uncomfortable with that they're conceived of themselves almost as engineering firms where it's always going to get better and better they're almost like a a a motor company where you know it would be like if if volkswagen decided that they were going to reissue the volkswagen beetle in its original 1940s form for sale now people would be like you know why are they doing this this isn't this isn't a a a car for an innovative company people worried about that damaging their standing as being innovators and at the kind of cutting edge in the 90s they are able to to really work with that and they create these sort of differentiation between the heritage aspect of their brand and the more um, forward thinking sports brand and it's from that that basis that you see them developing the the much more fashion oriented stuff where you've got fashion sub brands or um kind of um dual kind of marketing strategies where you're you're aiming your stuff at high level athletes, but you're also selling loads and loads of stuff for the fashion market. And you're working with people like Jeremy Scott or um, uh, who else would they have? Stella McCartney or people like that. The car analogy is very good there because, I mean, this is just what Jaguar did with the, the reissued XKSS and uh, lightweight E-types where they, took the old technology which you couldn't even use on the road today but reissued it because it obviously was bucket loads of money to be made and people have this like they realize that people i mean if if jaguar had done this and they they didn't have any um other products so if in the the 19 1980s or 90s or something they'd just reissued an e-type people like what are jaguar doing they're they're just selling an old car why are they doing this haven't they got any new ideas um, whereas if they're doing it as part of a, a dual strategy where they've also got the new ideas, but they are celebrating their heritage. I think the motor companies are actually a really good example of this. So you see them, like Porsche is good at it, Mercedes-Benz is really good at it, where they have a, a, a heritage side. So they support the old stuff, but they've also got a very new thing. Um, and the sports companies kind of try, kind of did something similar where they've got 
you know, reissue programs of shoes from the 70s or 80s or 90s now, um, alongside really forward-thinking technology. Yeah, definitely similar. Because technology in sports shoes is something that is inching ever forward. I imagine that uh, for the professional athletes, there's always that little edge they might gain through uh, an even more evolved shoe. Yeah, always in pursuit of marginal gains. That's it, like the from the cycling teams like constantly looking for ways in which you can shave off fractions of a second uh to you know go faster and that goes back that i mean that goes right back to the very the very beginning of it where they were looking to these new materials and these new ways of making them to make it better and it's always been a a, a, a kind of site where um companies have tested out new materials tested out new new approaches looked for for um new ways of doing things in pursuit of tiny weeny gains tiny weeny kind of improvements for the athlete because there is that emphasis always on performance and always trying to make it better and, and to see whether the footwear can actually enable you to to achieve your objective faster quicker better um and it's still continuing so that's why you see them constantly experimenting with new soling materials constantly experimenting with new ways of making making a shoe it's why the shoes more so than perhaps any other type of footwear the the shape of them evolves and changes quite rapidly and can look kind of weird and unusual um because it is not driven i mean aesthetics is obviously a really important thing about it but it's not necessarily driven by aesthetics and that's kind of one of the reasons why they become so can kind of become so strange if you like would you say that there's some point in time where the actual shoes for sports and the shoes for fashion sort of diverged in their development in 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 historical terms mm-hmm. um i think that what you see actually is that there is this constant um kind of um exchange between them so what you see is that technologies and approaches from sports filter back into everyday shoes so if you were to take it that's what i mean about the victorian thing if you take a victorian tennis shoe to us it just looks like a normal shoe and it doesn't look that that different to say a, a desert boot or something you know um it's be, it becomes much more everyday technology so once these technologies are are no longer needed for sport so you know like a, a, a crepe rubber sole which was a really big deal in tennis in the 1930s is no, you know, no one wears plays high level tennis using crepe rubber rubber soles now, but we all walk around on crepe rubber soles on our Clark's Desert boots. So the technology, which was originally intended for sports, is used in an everyday setting, and that exge- that that process happens is is still happening now. So you see things like the molded soles, which were a technology that was used on sports shoes originally, now are used on everyday footwear you see some of the um construction techniques which are used for were initially used for sneakers now being used on shoes for everyday use um and i wonder whether that process is just going to continue so i don't think there's actually a point where the two kind of split off if you think about it in a manufacturing sense it's almost like there's a new technology which is used initially for sport but then is used for making shoes for other purposes once it's perhaps once it's become um less you know, like the edge that it has 
has given everybody in sport is no longer there because perhaps everyone's embraced it that's when it becomes used for, for mass production so you see that rubber soles that's just the standard thing now um who knows what will be the next thing you know plastic soles glued soles these are all things which were pioneered for sport um but now are just standard for normal footwear you say normal footwear but when i look at some of these things i can't sort of imagine <laughs> actually using them and, yeah. and given how how the prices sort of skyrocket and the availability is limited i mean are they releasing really less footwear than sort of collectibles well it, well, it depends what you're looking at i mean if you're if you're looking at the the kind of collaborations um and the the limited edition shoes then yeah these are they're almost they're like you know like they're art pieces if you like they are they are they are collectibles it is designed for a very limited market of uh almost like connoisseurs of this type of stuff they will want it for the most of us we're not you know we're not really interested in it and it doesn't really you know it doesn't really play to us um but at the same time those companies are also making shoes that are incorporating technologies which they are selling to athletes so nike has a, a program of selling weird and wonderful collaborations that it makes with people and it also has um advanced technology that it's using for its athletes now the advanced technology some of it is going to be too you know like self-lacing shoes or um like springy footbeds and cushioning polymers might be uh you know might find its way into everyday footwear in time might not some of it will but it will have an influence on what goes what follows it i think um the uh, the the collabor the the stuff that's designing collaboration i think that's much more of a um it's, it's almost like it's it's playing to its its own market it's a it's got there's a there's a kind of group of people who are very interested in that and that's not really i mean they're not really intended to be everyday shoes i don't think and then they don't have a mass kind of appeal most people just want something relatively straightforward and simple i think because there is a clear difference between shoes you'd buy to wear now and shoes you buy as an investment yeah definitely like some of these things you buy them i mean some people do wear them obviously but a lot of this this kind of stuff is is bought because you are um in that world and you want these particular shoes it's not the stuff that is sold for the you know the the companies themselves like this the the sneakerhead stuff the the you know like the latest Yeezy collab like the latest Yeezys the latest like Nike Travis Scott collaboration the latest Nike Off Whites or something the market for those is really really small in in you know like relative terms like what they're really making their you know making their money off is the basic shoes that sell for you know reasonable amounts of money which are available in shoe shops and supermarkets and have sporting goods stores around around the world so it's like the kind of standard cheaper stuff that's where the, the big money is and i think that you know elements of these kind of collaboratives the the kind of leading edge stuff filters back to those mass market things but it's not like a wholesale you know suddenly you're all going to be wearing these weird outlandish shoes it's like some sort of weird vision of the future where everyone wears these really really <laughs> weird clothes and <laughs> shoes yeah i think that's the thing i mean it is it is a bit sci-fi some of it isn't it um and i think that 
you do see things that are, you know, like so. For instance, the 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 Yeezy uh, shoes. So that's sort of collaboration between Kanye West and Adidas. Um, that uses some of their some of Adidas's latest tech. So it had a boost. So they have Boost Soles, which is a polymer uh, developed with BASF, the chemical company, on the sole, uh, and it has a a knitted upper, which was a was a big shift that where they managed to make, um, you know, knit one piece uppers from a piece of, you know, it's like a piece of fabric, um, and put structure into that. That's the big kind of change. So that the Yeezy is using that. Now you see those technologies being used in other shoes all throughout the range. So Yeezy takes it in one particular direction, but some of the um, kind of techniques and processes used to make them are are used in other ways. And then the other thing you've got is the kind of style of them is sort of very unstructured, um, loose, bag-like kind of styling that some of them have. That also you see being replicated in shoes which are designed for the mass market. So in the same way that like avant-garde fashion might influence what you eventually buy in Marks and Spencer, the same thing I think is happening now in the kind of the sort of sneaker world. So you've got kind of avant-garde designs that actually start influencing what everybody wears a few years down the line. And you've got leading edge, cutting edge technologies, which eventually become you know, used in a way that you see, um, you know, on the mass market. So again, like there's a, a, a comparison with the motor industry. So, you know, in, um, you know, motorsport, you see new things being developed. So like disc brakes or, you know, high halogen bulbs or whatever it might have been that initially were only on Formula One cars or Le Mans cars, whereas now those are on everyone's car. So it's a kind of similar process, I think. I seem to recall a couple of years ago when I heard about the the, the knitted uh, knitted trainers uh, that they were causing a wool shortage in the world, or the price of wool was going up because so they're making so many knitted trainers. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's a new one on me. Um, I think. I mean, the thing with the knitted ones is that it's um, if you look at the history of making it, it's about reducing the steps needed to make a shoe. So. I think one of the things about the sports shoe is it's almost like the quintessential modern garment in that it's all about trying to make it in fewer steps to reduce the amount of labor that goes into making them. And so that the changes that are developed in the beginning of the 20th century where they managed to stick soles on removes an entire process where you have to sew them on. So there's people on the production line are removed. Now, the knitting technology is um, re- replaces what was always the most labour-intensive part of making footwear, which is putting together the upper. So soles have always been a bit more, you know, there's fewer steps involved in putting a sole on a shoe than there is in making an upper. Trainers had focused on reducing the number of steps needed to make a sole over many, many years. So it becomes almost like a, a one-stage process by the 1980s. Um, but they were still having to have rows and rows and rows, often of young women stitching together uppers out of several different components. When they developed this uh, knitting technology, is a fundamental change in that you can just produce the upper from a shoe. So like a Nike fly knit, that's just a machine produces that and it just spits it out. 
at the end, like a the upper for it. It, it removes that that uh, entire um, that entire series of processes that are needed to make a make a shoe, and it makes it much easier to make them. So I don't know about shortages of wool. I mean, I think what it produces perhaps is a um, it enables them to make them much more quickly. Did they actually use wool though, or was it some synthetic? A handful of manufacturers did do. You know, like you see this kind of thing. I mean, this is one of the big things in sneakers is that it's such a it's such a plastic product um and so most of these knitting technologies is knitting them together out of synthetic fibers so most most sneakers now have really high content of plastic in them there are some manufacturers who are making them out of wool who are you know the smaller and more niche manufacturers who are perhaps taking this style and making woolen shoes as a kind of antidote to that whole um, emphasis on plastic, trying to make them a little bit more sustainable, a little bit more environmentally friendly. By the sound of it, my memory was a false memory then. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense though, doesn't it? I mean, like that's the thing. There's so many of them produced. I mean, like the, yeah. the production numbers of them are, are vast. So, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about this. It is It has become almost like the default go-to leisure footwear for millions and millions and millions of people around the world and it has also become sneakers have become kind of like they're, they're sort of the inexpensive footwear because they're mass produced and because you can make them um relatively cheaply in a way that perhaps more sustainable um traditional types of manufacturing aren't so they're much more expensive you know um mm. I think it's kind of interesting. So it does, you know, like you can imagine quite easily how if there is a, a, a demand for one particular material or one particular thing in association with sneakers or a particular type of sneakers, that it could cause global shortages because they are so, uh, it's such an uh, such a vast market. The production numbers of them are so just mind-bogglingly huge. I think that's, you know, it's, it's an easy step. An interesting intersect on the on the wool topic there. It must be what twenty years ago or so that uh, Nike pretty much saved the Harris Tweed industry when they wanted to use Harris Tweed for some basketball shoes. I think is that true? And um, the Harris Tweed industry at the time was really broken. Yeah. Uh, it was looking bloody bleak. Yeah. Um, and they called um, Don McKay, one of the main Harris Tweed weavers on um, on the Isle of Harris, and spoke to his wife and said they, they needed some samples because they wanted to order some 200,000 metres of Harris Tweed or something. Wow. <laughs> and he, at the time, wasn't even aware of what Nike was, but yeah. he got in touch with them. And I think that meant that all the weavers on the islands were secure for the next years and they had to recruit more. Wow. This was just as such an immense order. Yeah. And, of course, that got them past the difficult times and it picked up since then. Yeah. So thanks to Nike, we have Harris Tweed. Otherwise, it might have just disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly. There's this – I mean, I think this is the thing about it. It is – there's a lot of bad – you know, like there's a lot of problems with the, the global – footwear industry um but it also you know does employ an awful lot of people and it does like provide it has provided historically as well has provided kind of forms of uh, a way of a means by which economies can develop um and you've seen that in asian economies particularly where 
where footwear is almost like a first step on uh, a kind of route toward greater increased incomes uh, and more complex manufacturing and uh, making different things. So it does employ a lot of people, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, the, the things about this knitted technology that I kind of wonder about. Is it just, you know, like some of the things that they've been doing recently is, you know, making automated shoes, so embracing technology, stuff like the 3D printing, um, kind of looking for ways in which they can reduce the, diff, you know, trying to make them reduce the difference, different materials that are in a particular shoe so it makes them more easily more easily recyclable. Um and I think that you know the the question is is what happens when you've just got a machine that pumps out trainers out at the end of it without very much uh, you know human activity along the way? It just seems that there'll be loads and loads of people whose jobs previously would have been involved in making these things that will no longer be needed. And I just wonder what will happen with that. I think that's an interesting point to put up against most companies claims of sustainability now everyone's talking about closed loop production and uh, recycling and all this and then you see that the sneaker companies who are traditionally major users of fossil components um so they're seeing the end of oil i suppose at some point now but they are pumping out shoes at probably a greater volume than ever before and feeding the collecting market, which they obviously very much know about and are working with. It's just, I think that's a. One, were you going to say? Uh, no, I just remember when when I was a when I was a teenager, I liked to wear white Nike basket shoes, yeah. uh, and I think I I might have bought one a fresh pair every season, or I might have managed two seasons if I whitened them. But you're sort of thinking that, okay, one pair of shoes will last a year or two. But nowadays, people are buying so many. Yeah, it's like, it's just crazy. It becomes normal to have mountains of the things. Um, yeah, I think that's – I mean, it is one of these questions that, that is – I don't think there's really found an answer to it, is that really they should be encouraging people to consume less and have – fewer pairs of shoes that seems to me like the most obvious kind of point to make um and yet that doesn't really sit with a a business that in its entirety is just devoted to making people buy more and more shoes um and the kind of culture which has just embraced the idea that you have that you have or that indeed that you need to have you know a, a rotation of shoes so you've got one for every different day of the week or something um I think it, you know how how can that really long term be sustainable? And you see a lot about the companies. You're, you know, you're right that they talk about um, the kind of sustainability. They talk about ethical manufacturing. They talk about their use of um, plastics and recycling. They talk about reducing the kind of components of them, reducing the the need for them to be shipped around the globe, perhaps like by bringing production back to the major markets. Um, yeah, that kind of doesn't sit with an industry which produces millions and millions and millions of basically plastic objects every year and i don't really know i mean it's a it's a big kind of issue with the fashion industry as a whole really that you've got an industry which is devoted to making people buy more and more and more 
uh, and to throw away things before they are used up or, or worn out. And then how does that sit with like these objectives and these ideas of, of creating something more, you know, that's less kind of destructive in environmental terms? Some sort of magic maths going on there, I think. Yeah, I think so. I don't know whether they've found the answer though, but it it a lot of it. I'm I'm always a little bit suspicious of these. You know, you see these kind of green initiatives and things. And one of the things actually, like we I talk about with students, is about sustainability. So really, you know, I mean, it's sort of heartening that so many young people and young students who are going into the fashion industry are so bothered by this. Is that they're all asking questions about how can you know how can they do things more sustainably how can they kind of make things better thinking about perhaps what their own role in future might be and people do look at the sneaker industry and they do say well you know like these companies they've brought out a range of shoes that are fully recyclable or made out of recycled materials or 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 something like that but it's a it's a niche range it's made for it's like something that these collectors would go and buy it's not most of the business it's not the it's not the shoes that you see on sale in walmart that are made like that it's a handful of a handful of models which are available primarily for these collectors just a showcase really i think yeah and i think that i mean i do think that they are kind of grappling with some of these issues because they are you know they are thinking about what is the future for their industry and they are i think you're right looking at you know, how can they perhaps reduce their dependence on uh, oil? How can they, how can they perhaps think about the, the waste problems that are associated with it? Um, one of the things that I think that they've been they've, they've been pretty good at is actually reducing wastage within the industry in the construction process. But that you know, there's a, a kind of financial you know reason to do that. It makes your business you know better it streamlines your business right so i think they are interested in it but i think there's still quite a lot that they need to do um, or could do i was watching the bbc program killer kicks yesterday which of course you have a, a part in and there was talk there about the recycling of um, of trainers yeah and I, I get the impression that's probably not as simple as we hope it might be because it's a, I mean, there's all sorts of different plastics going into one shoe. It's just, it's a difficult, it's a difficult process because the shoes are made up of exactly different plastics in them. So you've got, if you think about a a shoe, uh, uh, you know, a a kind of traditional looking basketball shoe, for instance, um, you know, it might have bits of leather on the upper, it might have bits of kind of one type of plastic providing heel support. Uh, it might have another type of plastic used on the uh, midsole. It might have a rubber on the outsole. It might have yet another plastic used in the synthetic laces. And all of that, you know, because it's all stitched up and bonded together, it's very, very difficult to recycle. Um, even shoes that are made entirely from synthetic oil-based materials now you would still have the same kind of thing so it might have you know polyurethane foams on the bottom nylons in the uh, uppers and separating them is is almost impossible so it becomes kind of an impossible thing to to recycle one of the things that they are trying to do is to trying to to make them so that they are all from the same type of plastic so that it becomes something that you can just recycle 
I fear it's like uh, the main part of plastic materials that in reality it's almost impossible to recycle them and that the best way, um, I use the word advisedly, is to just burn them yeah. and reclaim the energy. Yeah, I think that um, idea. You see them, there's a big, there was a program, they called it Regrind. It was a big Nike Nike thing um, where they used to, and I, I think they still do it. They would collect their old shoes and they would grind them up and they would make surfaces for um, sports courts. So basketball courts and tennis courts would be made out of ground up recycled old shoes. Um, and there's various programs have been in been in place like that for a long time. I think really the big problem is is that loads and loads of these shoes just get chucked out in the in the rubbish. They just get stuck in the bin. Um, and they're not really, then, you know, they're not like a pair of, you know, hearty, stout boots that you can get resold and repaired at a cobbler. Like once the soles are gone, they're pretty much done. Um, so they aren't really made to last, are they? No, exactly. No, and some of them are deliberately not made to last because they're, they're meant to last as long as a, you know, like a season in, of basketball or a. a a, a race in in some of the running shoes they're deliberately made to be just on the kind of tolerance they need to they're as good as they need to be and no better for sports purposes um yeah they don't they're not they don't last i mean the problem with them is is that actually they don't last but yet they do that's the that's the thing you know like the the you, you know the, the your toe goes through the through the synthetic fibers and the the laces rip or something like that the sole starts peeling off and they're done as a shoe. Yet the problem is, is that they're as materials, they are going to last for hundreds of years. I mean, that's the that's the really big problem. Yeah, you, know, you could bury your shoe um, and dig it up, and it would still be there five hundred years later. This is the difference between you know Henry VIII. He could have chucked away his special tennis shoes, and they would, I guess, they would have been made out of felt or something, um, and perhaps goat skin or something. I don't know. And then it's all you know like natural materials that that kind of biodegrades and and disappears and goes back to the soil whereas the stuff that we've got today just doesn't do that and that's the that's the really big challenge and i guess the synthetics have become so good now that uh, it, it wouldn't even be possible to start thinking of going back to more natural materials i think that is possibly one of the problems they are just i mean you you could but for the sport process then no, yeah, I don't think they would. I don't no. think they would, they would want to because I, I, I do see more modern sneakers now, which are natural leather and natural rubber. Yeah. But of course, they aren't tech footwear like much of the others are. Yeah, you've got. It's almost like I was saying. There's a. It is now just a, a category of footwear, and you can you can get sneakers that are not really designed for sport, but they are sort of sneaker style that are made out of you know, well-sourced um, leathers that have natural wood soles that are made in the same way that a shoe might have been made 150 years ago. Um, but those aren't the ones that are designed for for performance. And they're not really the ones that are being sold in mass numbers, like great numbers either. No, thinking of my goatskin crown Northamptons <laughs> with natural rubber sole, uh, they are made to order, so they are a bit specialist, but they are very nice for walking around a whole day in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, you know, I've... 
Tim Little and Grenson. Yeah, I, I mean, so Tim Little and Grenson, they're making sneakers, and I think that's become a, a kind of important strand for their business. And they are making them out of lovely leather and um, kind of using techniques which are you know, date back many, many years. But they're not selling them in Walmart. They are premium products. I mean, perhaps the thing is, is that we have become so accustomed to spending so little on these shoes that we need to get, you know, get get used to the idea that we need to spend more on stuff if we actually want stuff that's um, made in a more ethical, more sustainable manner. Um, you know, if you're accustomed to spending like $30 or something on a pair of sneakers, chances are there's going to be, you know, something wrong with them along the lines. So... Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, people have become used to shoes and other goods being available so cheap and yet still expecting them to be of a certain quality. But if you try to walk back the maths on them, you see that it isn't actually possible to make anything at that price point yeah. if you're paying people, buying the materials, shipping it and so forth. It's just not feasible. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things that's interesting actually about sneakers is just how – how much they've come down in price, relatively speaking, over the last few years. If you look at some of these shoes that are being reissued now, like shoes from the 80s and 90s, you could get a pair of shoes which would have cost $100 or £100 in like 1989, and then 30 years later it costs like £110. But if you do the maths on it, it's it, originally it would have been, it's like the equivalent, its original sale price is the equivalent of something like £275 now. So actually, in real terms, they've become much, much cheaper. And I think that's one, also one of the reasons why people have so much more of these, because they are, relatively speaking, are cheaper to buy than they were in the past. So in the same way that clothes have just become loads cheaper because of all the changes that have been wrought by globalization, by the fact that you can ship goods around the world, that things are being made in vast quantities in factories in China. That's all had a great big impact on it. And then because of that, people have got used to the idea that things should be cheap. Um, it's like the kind of whole fast fashion argument, you know. Like if you if you're only shopping in shops that are selling fast fashion garments, where they've got these huge um, economies of scale, the labour costs are low, it's all shipped around the globe, um, and you can spend like you know two dollars on a t-shirt or something, you become accustomed to spending that amount of money on it. Whereas actually, if you were trying to make that in a higher wage economy, it would be you know huge, like you know that it would have been way more expensive. I think that's one of the things that's happened in trainers, like just people becoming accustomed to the idea that should, they should be cheap. Yes. I see we're running out of time, Thomas. In closing, I'd like to hear, what are your favourite sneakers ever? Favourite? You may, may go top three, top five, if you like. Top three. Um, Adidas Ilya Nastasi Super, which are uh, made by Adidas France and were introduced in 1979 and have a polyurethane sole and a um, sort of synthetic mesh upper and were very, very popular in France in the 1980s when I used to go on holiday there as a kid. That's probably my favourite ever. Um, another favourite are Nike Air Max 1, which were introduced in 1987, and are the first ones that have the big bubble in the side, so the little window where you can see into the inside of the sole, and which were designed by Tinker Hatfield, who is one of the Nike designers and probably the most influential sneaker designer in history and he says he was inspired in part by the Pompidou Centre so I think that's 
another one of my favorites and then probably you know like loads of trainers that i just can't you know can't can remember dimly but don't um don't have any more those are my top two i don't know what my third would be are you a huge collector yourself i'm not a, i'm not a collector i'm more of an accumulator so <laughs> I, I don't like i don't set out to you know i have i i, I kind of got into that whole thing in the, you know when ebay sort of took off and i've started you know finding myself buying these weird trainers from the olden days and getting them sent from you know like idaho or something um and amassed this sort of odd collection of trainers which i then got rid of i've got lots of trainers but i kind of have ones that i um buy that i like and then i try to wear them and then inevitably another pair i mean i'm as bad as anybody i'm all the things that i'm sort of criticizing i'm i'm as bad as i'm you know i'm guilty of so i buy another pair comes out oh i really want those ones i really want those and suck it in every time they get me so no i'm not i'm not a collector i'm not kind of like going out there i mean there are some guys out there who just want to have every single pair of adidas made in west germany ever or something i'm not like that but i I have got a, a cupboard full of trainers yeah yeah, they've got a problem, but you don't. <laughs> no, I'm, I haven't at all. No problem here. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, Thomas, this was great. I think I'd like to talk to you again at some point and go further in our discussion. That'd be an absolute but pleasure, yeah. This has uh, been great for now. So um, thanks again and uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was all for this week's episode, a new episode next week. If you'd uh, like to investigate further, uh, my blog is at welldresseddad.com, Instagram at welldresseddad. Um, You've been listening to Gomology. Please uh, leave a rating and a review if you like. I'd really appreciate it. And if you'd like to get in touch, the email address is welldresseddad at gmail.com. Thanks a lot and catch you next week.